This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 112 of the Rebel Author Podcast. This week, I'm talking to Janice Hardy all about how to improve your descriptions and settings. But first to last week's question, which was, do you have a pen name? Or if you don't, what would your pen name be? We only had one comment this week, which was from CJ Dainton on Instagram. And CJ said, I collect pen names, which is uh, lovely and hilarious. I um, am in the process of creating a new pen name, which is going to stay secret. And I've kind of, I had narrowed it down to one and now I sort of opened it back up to two, uh, which is sort of variations of each other, and I can't really choose or make my mind up. Uh, so I don't know how I'm going to do that because I want to keep it secret. <laughs> so I can't have, I can't tell you what they are. Um, <clears throat> I may eventually let you know what they are. I don't know, uh, but just for now, whilst I, whilst it's still feeling fresh and vulnerable, I'm going to keep it to myself. Um, okay, so this week's question is, since you started writing, what's the best money you spent? And I asked my patrons that question this week in the Patreon Poison and Prose Q&A. So yeah, I thought it was such a good uh, question and we had some amazing responses that I thought I would share the question with you guys as well. Okay, so book recommendation of the week this week is Romancing the Beat by Gwen Hayes. This is a book all about how to write romance. It is very short um, and it has kind of the key beats, story structure beats, points that you have to hit when writing a romance book. I thought it was fantastic, very um, short, simple, uh, to the point. Sorry about that, I uh, had a phone call. <laughs> right. Like as I was speaking, and uh, it was amazing because it was Waterstones calling me back, telling me that they um, had found a book that I was trying to get a hold of, which is fantastic uh, because I had not been able to get it and my pre-order had not been fulfilled, so they're keeping it aside. And this is what happens when you make friends with bookstores. Um, okay, so yes, Romancing the Beat, it is fantastic. Also, a shout out to Jeff Adams from the Big Gay uh, Fiction Podcast. Jeff, very kindly sent me a Scrivener file template that has the beats, the romance beats uh, laid out in it, which I found very useful. So um, yes, thank you very much to Jeff. Um, and I will, of course, leave uh, links in the show notes to all of that. Okay, so not uh, huge amounts from me this week. Don't forget that Story Bundle, I am in the Story Bundle with... Um, amazing authors and the bundle is I think 15, 16 books uh, all about, uh, they're all non-fiction, all about writing, writing craft, publishing, marketing, uh, content, creation, email marketing, all of that good stuff. It is a bargain price, it's a pay what you like price, uh, so go and check it out at storybundle.com forward slash nano. I'm in there with authors like Monica Leonel, Kevin J. Anderson, Mark Lefebvre and Joanna Penn, um, Craig Martell. So yes, a stack of authors with amazing books. Please do go and check it out. Um, it is limited time only. It will end, I believe, at the very beginning of December. So make sure you go and check that out. Um, the only other thing to say is that I am participating in a Black Friday deal. Um, check my website and the show notes. I I just haven't checked the calendar, so I'm not quite sure the date when this will go out and when it will go live. But um, keep listening. Either um, this week in the show notes, check the show notes, or next next week there will be a whopping Black Friday deal. So make sure you have a look for that. 
in terms of what I've been working on, I more or less have cleared the decks and done nothing other than work on trade this month, this month, this week. Um, I've had a monster week. It is uh, in three days. I've edited twenty three and a half thousand words and written six thousand words, which is probably nothing to some people, but to me that is an awful lot. That's you know, uh, well ac across the month this month, I've equivalent. Uh, I've in ten days, I've edited and written the same as I did across the whole of last month. So it just goes to show me how much I'm capable of when I don't have a, a stack of other things on my plate. Um, that said, I don't know if you can hear, but I am not 100%. I'm a little bit, uh, I, I, my voice sort of waxes and wanes in and out. One minute it's fine and the next minute I'm coughing and it's very uh, crackled and hoarse. Um, but yes, okay, so, um, I am going to get trade done this month. I Like literally, I am going to get it done. Now, I wouldn't normally send it back out for a critique read, but I am going to send it back to my critique partner this time, just because I have added on quite a bit at the end. And um, because I'm finishing the series out now, I do feel like it needs to have another check, another proof. Um, but I am kind of saying to my critique partners, oh, my fingers are clicking, that um, I only want them to pick up stuff that is really crucial, that needs changing, because I just, I need it to be done. I need to work on other stuff. I have got other things that I want to be working on. So I'm ready to let it go, you know, no matter the state uh, that it's in. And of course, like the amount of pride that I will have just from getting through it, the book that I literally thought I would never be able to finish um, is huge. And then the freedom to be able to work on these new genres that I want to work on uh, as well is very exciting. So yes, I, I, yeah, I have had quite a monstrous week this week in terms of output. And tomorrow, today is actually Thursday, the 11th of November. Normally I record on Fridays, but I'm recording on Thursday today to kind of get all of my freelance and podcasting done today so that I've cleared up tomorrow to work on writing again tomorrow. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I think because I'm literally purely working on Trey, I don't have a huge amount to update you with really. Uh, so I think I'll just leave it there and uh, yeah, we'll crack on. Okay, so we have a um, quite a long rebellion this week. Um, and it's from Anonymous. So I can't I can't tell you who it's from, but I do love this story and I hope you'll stick with me, uh, even though it's quite long, uh, because it is a fantastic rebellion. I arrived at Aberystwyth University in the autumn of 1987. I'd escaped an abusive relationship um, outside of my home with a person in authority who should have known better. 18-year-old me arrived battered and without an ounce of confidence, believing that I was rubbish and deserved nothing good in my, in my life, so I immersed myself in my degree. Fast forward a few years and I and I was in what proved to be the most messed up relationship. He liked me fat and frumpy, making anything else unpleasant and fraught with conflict. It came, it became easier to comply and sink into takeaway food and fat pants to avoid the suspicion and arguments. Until a younger student caught my eye across a crowded university library. He smiled at me, and I, but I looked away, cheeks flushing. Of course, I assumed he'd spotted the imaginary ketchup on my shirt or coal smut on my nose. But when I looked back, he peeked again and we connected in some strange spiritual way. I remained in my hideous relationship, but only because we were in a flat together. But I rebelled, quietly, religiously, and without guilt. I kept the fat pants, but I stopped eating the crap and lost weight. Piece by painstaking piece, I sorted out my life undetected. 
I noticed the boy in the library many times after that and we became nodding acquaintances. His significance never progressed beyond making me realise that I was seen and worthy of a smile, which didn't contain sarcasm or pity. One day, the boyfriend and I climbed a hill. We sunned ourselves on a rocky ledge with only the ocean in view. Craving an all-over tan, I whipped off everything but my knickers and stretched out uh, on our ledge. Boyfriend went purple with rage. He tried everything from humiliation to ridicule, but I turned up my music and ignored him. The svelte body I'd I'd secretly honed was kissed by the sun as I relaxed, and he tried to put me in shade behind his newspaper. I noticed a family on the rocks about half a mile out to sea, but figured they couldn't see me on the ledge with my tiny boobies out. Not without binoculars anyway, which they didn't appear to have. By the time they started shouting and pointing, I'd already committed to my nudie rebellion and couldn't bear to lose face, so I ignored them too. When the air sea rescue helicopter soared overhead, I decided it was time to don my shirt and covered myself up. Boyfriend didn't speak to me on the long walk back into town, but my disobedience had given me courage. I realised I no longer cared, and anyway, I felt the sunburn prickling against my shirt and knew I had tanned boobs. We arrived on the promenade to find a crowd gathered. The helicopter, which had landed on the rocks below our ledge, had delivered a crumpled, wailing male into the belly of a waiting ambulance. A man rushed over to me, wife and two children in tow, the family from the rocks. Did you see that? The father demanded. Boyfriend and I shook our heads. See what? We tried to warn you, the wife gushed. There was a guy trying to look at you from the walking track above and he leaned too far over. Didn't you see him fall? The peeping Tom had overbalanced on the ledge above us and catapulted himself off the side of the cliff. (laughs) God, it's not funny. It's awful but also it's hilarious that he was trying to cop a load of your boobs (laughs) oh I love this story neither of us had seen his short painful flight but it ended with many broken bones (laughs) that'll learn him for trying to look at a pair of baps I admit to feeling a little sorry for him because he wouldn't have got much of an eyeful on the way down due to boyfriend's angry newspaper flapping but I decided that day I was worth more than all of them. I bided my time for two more weeks, aced my finals and confessed my unhappiness to my father over the phone. He and mum hired a van, drove up hours and hours to pick me up and take me back home. I spent the next year ghosting boyfriend and he couldn't stand it. After a whirlwind romance, I married the love of my life. In 30 years, he's never asked anything of me but to be myself. A week after returning from our honeymoon, who should pop up at my place of work? Yes, you guessed it. He told me in front of a packed reception area that his life had turned to crap and he wanted me back. His exact words. Also, I'd left him with a 12 quid share of the electricity bill, which he'd like me to repay. (laughs) can we at least talk over lunch he asked no i replied i gave him my sweetest smile and left him standing there with an audience turning back i added my husband wouldn't like it then i stuck my chin in the air and walked away from him and everyone else who thought i could blow who thought they could blow out my candle I have never looked back. Uh, We really do teach people how to treat us by what we accept. I love this story. I love that it is a story of empowerment, of um, loving oneself. And yeah, I just also, I love that um, a guy broke a bunch of bones because he was trying to look at your tits. I think that's hilarious. (laughs) that will learn him for being a bit of a perv um obviously it's awful and you know I feel terribly sorry for that person but also (laughs) what an idiot oh 
If you would like to be Rebel of the Week, then please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your rebellion to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or you can Instagram me at Sasha Black Author. Okay, so thank you so much to Hunter Keris, who is a new patron. Uh, welcome. Hopefully your Slack links have been sent to you um, and you can join us in our Slack community. And a gigantic thank you to JP Rindflesh the ninth for upping their pledge. A whopping big thank you to all of my existing patrons. We had a wonderful Poison and Prose session this week. Um, it really was so lovely. I love getting to write with you. I love all of the questions that we ask and talk about and kind of that warm, loving community feel. If you guys would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like Poison and Prose or the Rebel Readers Masterclasses or the occasional bloopers that I like to send out and a bunch of other stuff, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, that's it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Janice Hardy. Janice is the award-winning author and founder of Fiction University, where she helps writers improve their craft and navigate the crazy world of publishing. When she's not writing about writing, she spins tales of adventure for both teens and adults, and firmly believes that doing terrible things to her characters makes them more interesting. Hello and welcome! Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Good to you be are, here. You are most welcome. No, I'm really glad. I, I have sort of known you from afar for a really long time in this indie world, which is tiny. Um, so, it, yeah. you know, and I've read a couple of your books as well. So it's lovely to like see you and meet you digitally um, and have exactly. you Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right back at that. It was like, I was so excited when I got your email going, oh, it's Asha Black. Oh, I'm on. That's so, I know, and I was like, oh, Janice said yes, yeah, you know, like, and then, and then, and then we meet, and we're like, oh, yeah, we're actually just humans, and we both love words. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, well, to start, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you, and like your journey, and kind of how you got to like where you are today? Where you are? I, sure, you know, in some ways, it's kind of boring, but I think that's inspirational in a lot of ways, because it's not like I knew somebody, or I had this, this dramatic story and or you know that's worthy of a Hallmark movie or something I was just I always loved words I loved writing I started writing my own little books when I was like seven or eight and illustrating them they were terrible of course but I just always wrote always wanted to write and eventually I thought wow you know this is actually a career I could do something with this I could I could actually try to be an author and did the slush pile query and got you know got an agent through I was at a conference when I when I pitched to an agent and got one through there and you know there wasn't anything fancy I was absolutely your boring traditional always wanted to write taught myself took a few classes here and there but basically was self-taught did the slush pile got the agent got the big you know traditional publishing six-figure deal like the whole you know it's like almost the dream going through it the boring way and that was just kind of how I did it so yeah, it's funny. I always used to joke, I'd hear, go to conferences and you'd see these amazing authors and hear these incredible keynote speeches. And I used to say, boy, I, you know, I hope I never have to do a keynote because I have nothing inspirational to say. And then I had to do a keynote once. And I went, oh, shoot. So that was kind of my thing because I said, well, actually, I guess it is kind of inspirational because it's like, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Like, all you have to do is write a book that's great and get it out there. And, you know, it can happen to anyone. So I think that actually is, is somewhat inspirational. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. Because, it you know, it shows that doing the work actually does produce results eventually, you know. Exactly. exactly. Um, so are you a hybrid author now? Uh, I am. Um, I've got traditional published. I've got my own self-publishing. And I kind of look at it and I, I treat it with it, each book. What's the best path for this mm-hmm. kind of thing? And then I just decide, you know, when I, uh, I'm between agents at the moment, but when I was with my agent, we would look at each book and decide what's the best path for this. And that's where we would go. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably going to stay with that because there are so many options, you know, like with the nonfiction, it made no sense to go traditional because you can have so much more control. And I had my own platform and it just makes more sense to do that myself. But I write for teens and with children's books, you almost have to go traditional because there are so many gatekeepers and it's very difficult for indie books to be found because it's not like you're going online and looking for books. 12 year olds aren't doing that. They're getting book recommendations from parents and teachers and librarians and stuff. But for adult fiction, I can pick either way, whichever I think is the best option for it. So I have a, an indie published adult fiction because it just made the most sense for that particular book. Mm, so mm. I just kind of go, whatever, I think the book is going to be the best path for it. Yeah. And I think that is absolutely like the right way to look at it. But I think when we're quite early on in our journey, we have, we tell ourselves lots of things about what validation is what we want whether that's more sales or income or being full-time or or having a traditional deal and I think it takes a while to like get over that first whatever it is that we wanted to get to the point where we it's like business decision what is the correct Mm -hmm. business decision or like the best strategic decision um so yeah yeah, I love that and even I have it's taken me a while because like I was vehemently against traditional publishing for a really long time and now I'm like going through some foreign deals and like looking at one of the books that I'm working on like "Mm, this would be better like to to at least try and query so yeah I don't know I don't know like yeah I I definitely think I've had to learn that lesson Uh, it Um, is and there's a lot of people who are the flip side of that um and I think I think some of this is a little generational like I think the older you are if you grew up always dreaming of seeing your books on the shelves and in the bookstores before indie publishing was even a thing before ebooks that is what's in your mind as mm. making it as an author. And I think if you grew up more with the eBooks and the indie world, then there's a whole, the, the vision of what success means to you and that validation is completely different. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're on those two sides of the spectrum. And then of course there's everything in between. Exactly. So you kind of have to figure out what does success mean to you? And then you can pursue it that way. Exactly. I completely agree. Um, okay. Well, we're not here to talk about hybrid publishing. We're here to talk <laughs> about um, description. Um, so I read your book on description and loved it. And that's why um, I reached out to you. So like, I don't know, aside from like good description being very subjective because some people like really rich and purpley descriptions and some like very clean descriptions. What, like, what do you think that good description is or what does it look like? Um, In a nutshell, I think it's anything that's going to help readers visualize the novel and enable them to, to immerse themselves in the characters and the world. Um, uh, which is one of those uh, very general (laughs) outfit, you know, kind of statements. Um, But I think a lot of good description comes from character. And even depending on where your narrator is and where your, what your point of view is, because that plays a huge role, uh, as you're saying, because it is subjective um, and something to take care of. But you don't want to just describe what's in the room or something that's so general that 
what you see in your head isn't necessarily what your readers are going to see in their head. Um, I was at a, a conference years ago or a book festival. Where I heard Kathleen Dewey speak and she said something that has always stuck with me. She says, describe what readers won't assume, ah. uh, which I thought was a great way to do that because everybody knows what a sunset looks like. Everybody knows what mountains look like, you know, like, so if you're going to spend a lot of detail describing them, why are you wasting those words describing that? So if you're going to describe clouds, you're going to describe a sunset, then it should be more than just describing what something looks like because readers know that. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing it, you know, is that sunset, is it going to reflect character? Or are you going to be able to know something about the world or the character or the situation by doing that? Scott Westerfield has a fabulous opening line um, for his book, Uglies, where it says the sky was the color of cat vomit. Now, that is such a fabulous description because it tells you so much. You get a sense of what the color is, and you also have a huge sense of what the narrator's personality is like, because somebody who describes this guy as cat vomit <laughs> has a very particular attitude, you know, so I, I loved that. So, so yes, yeah, so a good description does that. It, it lets readers know more about just what's physically there or what something physically looks like. Yeah, I love that uh, quote about tele uh, t describing things that readers won't assume. Um, you know, I, th I think that is so true and we can be so wasteful with words um, if we're not careful and if we don't adhere to that. So yeah, I love that. What do you think are like some of the most common mistakes that writers make when trying to create good description? Um, describing everything that they see or everything that's in the room is one. Um, I, years ago, uh, I, I, anybody who's ever played like a pen and paper roll top RPG kind of game, if you were reading the modules or the, the pre-created uh, adventures, you get to the point where it's like, and now the box text. And then your game master would read a box of description about the room or the dungeon or wherever you were in. And that's kind of like, I see that with novels that have bad description because it's like, now we're going to get to a point where we're going to describe something and it's completely irrelevant to the actual story. It's just, this is what things look like. It's almost like setting in a script or something. Um, that's a big, a big mistake that I see. Um, I see with um, not letting the characters inform what they see, um, kind of just doing that external, not being really internal. If a character is seeing something, they should be describing it for a reason. It's not just that it's there. Um, trying to describe every little tiny thing in, in a scene. You don't need to do everything. Usually that's too much. Um, it's like if you have something pictured in your head that you know exactly and you're trying to describe it exactly as you see it. It usually comes across being more confusing because you're describing details that you know in your head, but there's no context for it on the page. Uh, info dumps are another big one. You see a lot of info dumps in backstory back and point of view characters that are too self-aware about what they look like. Those are probably the biggies. Mm. Um, and just taking maybe the last two, because I think that those two are questions that I hear a lot. One, how can you spot and thus get rid of information dumps? And two, on the point of view characters and self-awareness with what they look like, how can you effectively describe a character's appearance? Like in particular for first person, but um, yeah. That's the tough one. Um, well, with info dumps, um, for spotting them, uh, anytime you're reading through and you find a large dump of information that is clearly for the reader's benefit, not for the character's benefit, that is a red flag for an info dump. Mm. Um, and, and you can also think, 
is this something the character would logically think at that point in time, at that moment in the scene? If the answer is yes, then you can kind of keep it because info dumps aren't necessarily bad, sacrilege, I know, but they're not necessarily bad. It's just how they're used. Um, so if you have to info dump, especially if you're doing like a science fiction or fantasy or even historical or something or technical information where it's stuff that readers absolutely do need to know, uh, make it relevant to the scene and also keep it in the character's voice. Mm. If something is in the character's voice, you can get away with almost anything because it's the character saying it, not the author telling readers what it is. Yeah, I love that. I, I really, really love that character voice. And that's like sort of got me thinking about um, how I can be clever with information. Um, the other the other thing that came to mind when you're talking, the other time that I'm able to spot an information dump is because it's usually talking about something that is not in the present time um, of the story plot. So you're talking about things that have happened in the past of the world or whatever so that's mm -hmm. another time that you can spot it is if it's if it's talking about yeah actions or events not in the present time um exactly. yes okay so what about um the the self-awareness and the description self-awareness yeah that's tough um now what you see all the time and readers get this they know it they let it slide over but it's things like you know I brushed my long blonde hair nobody is going to ever think about their own hair that way it's going to be like I brushed my hair or I twisted it up in a knot or something like that so you can do she brushed her brown hair um will just gloss right over it but it's an opportunity to be stronger with description um so a lot of ways you can either uh, especially if it's first person comparisons are really good you could do something like, you know, my sister's hair was much curlier than mine or hers was, you know, she had had the beautiful auburn color, not the carrot top that I had that I inherited from dad. You know, you can you can do a comparison like that, which works. You can have somebody maybe um, showing the especially for like a physical description. If somebody's short, you can show them struggling to get something off of the top shelf. Or if they're tall, you can have them having to duck and they go underneath something or somebody making jokes about what's the weather like up there, you know, kind of thing. You can think about uh, ways to kind of subtly imply something physical about a character mm. with something that that character who was that trait would experience in the world. The more you can have characters interact with the world, the more you can show the world and the more real you make that world feel. And that works with the characters as well. Um, you can also remember that characters are more than just their physical traits and readers are, most readers are much more interested in who they are, how they feel, what they think, and their opinions about the world than they are about what they look like. Mm -hmm. uh, you have some books like Travis McGee was never described in any of the series, like never, they, the author never described him because uh, it didn't matter, but you know, it's a character that readers love if they love that series. So you know, it's like you can sprinkle in a, a few things here and there, just enough for readers to give a sense of who the person is. Um, and then that's it. You don't even need to worry about them after that. But but yeah, think about what's important. You know, is it important to know that the character has blue eyes or brown mm. eyes or green eyes? You know, is that important? Now, some readers really like knowing the physical descriptions of characters. So you're really going to have to take your reader's 
into account on that and well. And it's also personal preference. I hate description. I don't like doing description, which is really funny, especially since I write fantasy, which is still full of description. But, you know, I like more about the characters and the people and what they are and what things mean. And then there's other people who love description. They want lots of description. So, you know, take your, your readership into account too. Because if you, especially if you're writing something like romance, the physical descriptions matter more in romance because that's where part of the visual and that's where the fantasy comes from. So you might do more physical description in a romance where you might not do quite as much in like a thriller uh, or you know a contemporary or something oops mm. okay. um so i love that you kind of spoke about putting a character's physicality into action so like the the if somebody's tall they can reach stuff or they have to duck under i like i love that i've never thought about like how using even though i think i do that in description I've never done it intentionally so like I'm definitely going to be more intentional about that now yeah like that's I love these podcasts because you always get pushed to think about what you do in a different way um yeah so I'm definitely going to be more conscious about that now I think that is fantastic um in your book you talk about the difference between tone and mood and I thought it was quite an interesting distinction so I wondered if you could explain the differences and like how you might create different effects like with them or, or how a writer should look at them. Definitely. Um, one of the things that I like with words and writing, which has helped me, is there's a lot of words that are used interchangeably. Tone and mood is kind of one of those. They talk about the tone of a story, the mood of a story, the mood of a scene, and they're frequently used interchangeably, but I like, if you think of them as slightly separate things, which I think they are, I think it helps understand them. And to me, tone is more like voice. It is the overall sense and style of, of a book. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a kind of, uh, very relevant to like the genre or, or the, the emotional layers of the book where mood is something that is created specifically in an individual scene to evoke a particular emotion from the reader kind of thing. Um, and one of my favorite tone examples is uh, the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, where Jack Sparrow was up and it's, he's up on that mast and the flags are flopping around and then he comes in and as he gets to the dock, he, the boat has sunk and he steps off onto the dock. Like in the beginning, it's this dramatic pirate in the sunset. And by the time he gets there, it's definitely lighthearted and humorous and playing off. And they're telling the movie viewers right away, don't take this movie too seriously. This is going to be lighthearted and fun. And that is setting the tone for the entire movie because you're being lighthearted, you're being fun. So if you're having a tone in a novel, you if it's a lighthearted novel, your, your voice, your narrative style, people are going to be more lighthearted. They're going to make more quips. They're going to make jokes. Even if things are serious, they're going to approach serious in more of a lighthearted way. If your tone is very scary or spooky, people are not going to be making lighthearted jokes, they might make jokes, but there's going to be an undercut of fear or, or sinisterness beneath them, you know, there's going to be, it's going to, it's going to capture that sense of spookiness, um, where mood, you could have all kinds of different moods in, in a story, and, and with a mood, if, you know, if you want things to be scary, or you want your readers to get nervous, you kind of think about how do you want your readers to feel, because mm -hmm. that's where that mood is going to go, it's, it's almost like the background music in a movie, 
where you'll you'll set up where if you want something to be very scary, you're going to start using imagery that's a little creepy, or you're going to use darker tones. You know, you're going to have characters who are starting to feel a little nervous or be or be a little apprehensive. If it's lighthearted and fun, you're going to have sunny skies, and you're going to have puppies running around or whatever is silly or fun that you're going to specifically pick images and even word choices. You know, there's a difference between something scurrying across the grass and something, you know, bounding across the grass. Those put up two very different images. So even your word choice is going to reflect whatever that mood is you're trying to accomplish. Mm, I love that. So mood is very changeable across the length of a novel and, and tone mm -hmm. is more consistent, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So I kind yeah, of think I like tone, it. tone is like voice yeah. and mood yeah. is like imagery or, or details yeah. or individual yeah. emotion feeling Tone, yeah mood, yeah mood yeah. is emotion mood yeah. is emotion yeah okay um can you talk about how a character's personality should impact the description you read at like or see in prose um this one's definitely subjective to what your your point of view style and where your narrator is because uh, an omniscient narrator is going to be very different from a first person narrator but in general um, if the character is describing something or they're looking at their world um, they have an entire lifetime of world experience to judge whatever it is that they're looking at uh, somebody who grew up on a small rural area is going to look at a big city very, very differently, just like they're going to look at a rural thing very, very differently. I mean, you look at, at, at people who grew up on farms and slaughtered animals have a very particular view and don't really, maybe not, won't get all that sad or have no issue with an animal being killed. But somebody who grew up in a, in a city who's an animal activist is going to have a huge opinion about animals being injured. And those are two very, very different uh, backgrounds and how they describe animals and how they interact with animals will be very, very different. Uh, so that's kind of a one example. And so I think that if you think about who your character is, where they come from, and how they're seeing the world, it's going to help you figure out what details to describe. Um, I, uh, you know, I always say, if you're running for your life, you're not going to stop to to notice what the drapes look like, unless you're trying to judge whether or not those drapes are strong enough to hold you shimmying out the back window, then you might notice, oh, well, that's lace, that's going to break, I need the brocade, you know, then you might look at it that way. But yeah, like whatever's relevant to the character at that moment, if they're noticing something, why are they noticing it? What is their opinion about it? What is their judgment about it? And this can actually help you flesh out the world more too, because you'll know what the attitudes of the world are, what the rules of the world are, especially fantasy or science fiction, by how a character feels about it, how a character feels about another person, um, how they feel about what they're looking at. They're not going to describe things that are irrelevant to them. They're only going to describe things that matter to them, especially in that particular scene. And that can help you figure out what to describe and what not to describe. Mm, mm. Yeah, I love that. I love, um, I just read um, Way of the Argosi by Sebastian de Castel. He wrote the Spellslinger series. I don't know if you know it. Oh, okay. And um, okay. he, what, what I loved about his main character is how voicey the character was and that she would use these asides to describe things and but she would only tell you half the story and then she'd realize she was doing an aside and go back to the main. <laughs> and I just loved it and it was such this wonder I'd never seen I'd never seen that in a story like the, the I mean Jay Kristoff sort of uses footnotes in that that kind of narrate narrator type authoritarian kind of way um 
but yeah, I really love when we get to see what's important to a character and they tell you in their particular voice as well. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I love that. Um, how can you capitalize on settings better in your descriptions? Um, settings, I think, are one of those things, especially for newer writers, it's, it's missed opportunities because if you're choosing a setting for your story, why are you choosing that setting? If you could choose it anywhere, if you could set your book in any place and it doesn't change anything about your story, you're missing something. You know, it's like try to imagine Gone with the Wind set someplace else. I mean, this setting informed and colored everything about it. So like there's going to be inherent conflicts in your setting. You're, there's going to be things that are going to make your, it's harder for your characters to accomplish their goals. It's going to change their emotions and how they feel about things. It's going to color their opinions about their world. You know, it's like if you're growing up in a dystopian world, what you know about the world, how you feel about the world is going to be formed by that world. So like having somebody with these incredibly modern our world sensibilities isn't really going to exist in a world that has never been in our modern world, you know, so it, it can kind of feel like a disconnect. It's like people are going to feel about their world based on the world that they live in. So I think when you're writing settings, uh, think about places, uh, what can make, you know, if you have a goal or a scene for your character, like what's the best scene for this? Think about emotionally what your character is going to be. Do you want your character off balance for the scene? Do you want them to make a mistake? Well, put them someplace that makes them uncomfortable because the setting is going to help push them into an area that will make them uncomfortable and may maybe push their buttons. You know, if you want them to feel confident, if they need to be strong, maybe put them someplace that makes them feel strong you know, make them someplace that makes them feel comfortable. You know, that's ways that you can, can use the setting. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. Uh, one of the, one of my biggest issues uh, when I'm writing is I get 70% of the way through a novel and then I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. And I realize <laughs> that I have to shift the location of the opening scene. Never does, does the scene change. It's exactly the same scene, but the bloody location has to change. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, like the whole novel makes sense as soon as I like change location. Literally, this has happened like so many times, I can't even begin to tell you, it, it drives me bananas. Um, but yeah, and, and it's because setting plays such an important role. Um, and yeah, so I just, I love everything that you're saying. Um, so emotion and descriptions. I think one of the mistakes a lot of newer writers make is that they tell a lot of emotion. Um, mm -hmm. But how can you make your emotions more descriptive and less telling? Okay. I think about instead of saying somebody was sad or they felt sad or any of those things, think about the physical, emotional and mental sensations that somebody who felt sad would feel. You know, um, are they crying? Do they have that knot in the middle of their stomach? Are they flopping down on the couch and sighing? You know, are they avoiding people? Like, you know, if someone was sad, how does that make them feel? What type of things go through their head? You know, what, what type of physical sensations do they feel? Um, and if you're describing those aspects of it, readers can figure out that the character is sad by observing them, by hearing what they say, hearing what they think, observing what they do. Um, and that's always what you want to do is be able to let readers go, oh, well, obviously they're sad. Look how they're acting. That's what you, you know, what, what you want. Uh, and that can work. You can also kind of mix in other things like don't go towards uh, 
the the first thing that you think of you know a lot of times if somebody is sad you've got struggling to hold back tears or biting a lip or you know eyes welling and the vision blurs you know those are all great descriptions and we use them all the time heck i have books that use the same ones but those are the descriptions that everybody goes to so think about how does your particular character experience those emotions because everybody's different especially with something like anger I, you know, it's like, I, I know uh, some families, you know, if you come from very loud families and they yell and they scream and they're all, you know, that's how they express anger. And then they all hug and cry. You know, they're very outgoing. In my family, nobody yelled. We were not confrontational people. We were angry. We just muttered snide comments under our breath at each other, you know? So if so somebody's angry, they might express it in a very different way than another character. So think about your character. How would they specifically express a particular emotion. Uh, and then you can dig deeper. And then when you describe those emotions and describe those sensations, not only are you capturing the emotion that you want, but you're also letting readers in, know a little bit more about your character and you get to learn a little bit more about who that person is and maybe what their upbringing is like. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Especially because I come from a highly competitive family. <laughs> so we are much more on the shouty, bashy, throwy things at each other. Kind of. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't bash or throw things, but we do shout. Um, especially uh banterous, aggressive, you're a loser comments. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> trash talking is great. Exactly. Yeah. So like yeah, that's a character. Talk. And yeah. that's a bit, yeah, that's a great way, especially if you have a character who's like that who maybe is running up against a character who's more like my family and doesn't say anything. And then they can have a huge disconnect because they can totally misinterpret what the other character is doing. And there's yes. a whole way that you can bring up some more conflict and add more tension to your scenes just by having characters misread each other based on their emotional responses. Yeah, and I think the other moment that I really love in um, in books is when an author has built this consistent character. So we know that, like, say, if they came from your family, they would not react to things, or or they would react, but like more by muttering and doing the snide comments. And then when when something pushes them too far, they have an unexpected reaction. And I always think mm -hmm. that is very humanizing because yeah. you sh like if I'm shouting like that's fine you need to worry when I get quiet <laughs> right exactly oh exactly and if you've done it right as soon as your character gets quiet the readers go oh uh -oh. yeah uh -oh. Uh -oh. oh no something's going <laughs> yeah. down now yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah like that's just one uh, one extra little tidbit for uh, listeners is to make sure that you pop in that unexpected reaction at some point um Okay, so you also have a section about layering in your book, and I wondered if you could just talk to that a little bit. Layering. Oh yeah, layering's fun. And sometimes you might need to do several passes with this to get it right, um, especially if you tend to lean towards particular um, senses in your descriptions. If you're very visual, you may forget to add in tactile or, or, or sounds or smells or anything like that. But um, using your five senses, uh, about everything. It's like you want to know what do things smell like? What do they taste like? What do they feel like? You know, add in some of those, mix in some of those other details in, in your story. So it's not just here's a description, here are three or four or five or 12 details about what something looks like. 
Um, you want to weave those in there. And you can also layer in some of your emotional stuff, like maybe how something, it's not so much about how what something looks like, but it might be also about what how something makes a character feel. So you can bring in some emotional aspects to it. Uh, somebody in a really bad mood or who was just dumped by their spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or something, if they walk out and it's a sunny day and the birds are singing, they may have a very different attitude about this stupid bright sun and the crappy birds. And I mean, they may just be, you know, describe it very differently than someone else. And you can get their emotional state as well as the physical stuff and then the sounds. And you can also layer in by weaving those details throughout the paragraph, throughout the page, so that you're not just stopping the story and dumping a lot of information all at once. You can layer it in by you get detail here and a detail there and an emotional response here and a thought here. And it's by reading over a couple of paragraphs, suddenly the reader has these five or six different details and the picture is painted and it feels more immersive and much more real because they're seeing the character interact with the world and they're gaining information as the character interacts with the world instead of having a, a block of paragraph or, or text where they read it. And come on, let's all know, unless we're huge fans of description and we want to read it, we skim through that stuff. You read the beginning, you read the end, you know, you kind of skim through it and there can be stuff that's lost. Uh, but if it's mixed in, then all of that information is given to the readers and they kind of absorb it even without realizing it. And then those pictures get made in their head and they can visualize the world much stronger. Mm -hmm. So yeah, think about, you know, how you can, can layer in things. So I've got some questions from my patrons and uh, the first one is from Shane Miller. And Shane says, how do you make sure you're not over describing a character or setting? Ooh, and that's a tough one because that is so, so subjective. Um, the first thing I think you need to figure out what, over describing actually means for your story and your genre. Uh, a literary novel character journey is going to have way more description than, than, like I said, uh, like a first person contemporary, because part of the joy of reading a literary novel is the language and is this description, and that's what your readers are going for. So look at that first so that you can judge what too much is. Once you know that, um, uh, it, it comes down to uh, anytime you're reading, and if you feel like you're, again, you're stopping the story to do a lot of description. If you see bulks of description in big paragraphs, sometimes that's a, a red flag. It's almost if you have more than a single paragraph with no character interaction at all, there's a good chance you're over-describing uh, because it's all external and it's all about whatever it is you're describing. There's no character in there. There's no sense of story in there. And that can be uh, a big red flag. And a lot of times, even if, if you just take that description and if you just spread it out, or you add some, some personal character judgment into it, suddenly that over-description isn't so over-described. Uh, so a lot of it is how much you give at one, at one time uh, feels over-described. Um, let's see what other things we can do in there. Um, what's the point of the description is another good way you can look at something. If the only reason the description is in there is to describe what something looks like, then definitely go, okay, how much of this is necessary? Because uh, sometimes if it doesn't do anything else, but say what something is, uh, we're throwing it in there just to add description for the sake of description. That can, can go in there. Try to think if there's anything else. I think the <laughs> only other one notes. that, the only other one I can think of is repeated description. So like oh, if somebody's wearing like a red cloak and like you're describing, you know, the maroony color, and then you're describing how 
like the redness is something else and then you're you know and it's just you're yeah. saying the same thing but in a different way like that exactly is, that's a great once. one yeah say it once and say it well you know exactly also look at how often you're describing similar things like how often are you describing lips or our attention to their mouth. Like if you notice, if you're going through there and every single one of your descriptions is generally in the same thing. Um, I, I had critiquing one of uh, a friend's uh, rough draft chapter recently. And I, and I pointed out to her that almost every one of her, her stage directions and her details had something to do with driving the car or parking. And it because they were driving somewhere and parking, get to a scene, and everything was turning off or doing this or the GPS on the car. Every description in the scene was car related in some way, shape, or form. That was over describing the car big time. It's like swap out some of those with something else, you know. And that's and that's very common in a first draft because you've got this yeah. image in your mind and you're seeing it and you're doing it. So these things aren't bad. Everybody does these. But yeah, that's another one. If you notice whatever general type of description you're using is the same type of description over and over and over and a little different than repetition but it's the same general area um a lot of times if you use more than three um descriptive words three details in one thing like three seems to be the rule of three like three is good if you go more than three chances are you're going too much <laughs> mm -hmm. if, you, if you notice you're using a lot of adjectives that's also a red flag that sometimes when we over describe we put in way too many adjectives mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we all know about adverbs. So <laughs> adverbs. Yep. adverbs um, are great for first drafts. I, I, I call them like placeholders, emotional placeholders, uh, because sometimes they're really good. If you're in the zone and you're writing, you can throw in an adverb on a first draft because it capsulizes what it is that you, that emotion or that sense or whatever it is. And you just don't feel like just going, flushing it out and describing it at that point. So you can use an adverb in the first draft, but definitely go back on that next pass and look yeah. for the adverbs and then flush them out. So Yeah, I completely agree. I think there is only, there's only one voice or one type of character that I know of where you can overuse adverbs and get away with it. And it's that kind of arrogant, academic -y, Terry Pratchett kind of humor like because Terry Pratchett overuses yeah. adverbs but it's for humor and he uses them in a very particular way mm -hmm. to create a particular voice and I think yes. that is the only type of character you can get away with it but but that's because it's intentional usage rather mm -hmm. than accidentally using them because you just didn't pull them out um oh exactly yeah I mean you can do anything it's not that adverbs in them of themselves is bad they're perfectly acceptable words it's just that they're frequently used as lazy writing they're used yeah. instead of the we, author creating what it, painting a picture they're relying yeah. on the adverb so that the reader can paint the picture instead yeah exactly exactly okay so lynn reed aubrey asks what are your favorite like resources or inspiration like books tools and websites so of course please do mention your own um oh, and yes. if you right. if you have any <laughs> others that you really like as well that would be great yeah definitely i do um now uh of course fiction university is there i've been doing that blog for 13 years and there's a there's just over 3,000 articles on writing publishing marketing from everything from brand new writers i want to write what should i do all the way up to i have 30 books how do i advance my career and you know maybe do some more uh, 
higher level professional type skill thing. So everything's there. If you have questions on that, definitely go to Fiction University. Um, as far as, as descriptions, uh, I'm kind of looking more at this description resources since that's what we're talking about. Um, for emotional stuff, the Emotion Thesaurus, uh, Angela Ackerman and Becca you know, Poglassi, that stuff is fabulous. I mean, her book is fantastic and all of their thesauruses are really great resources for things. Um, I really like uh, books on like body language and the micro expressions. Uh, Joe Navarro is a, an FBI agent who has several books on body language and his stuff is fantastic. I like his books a lot. Uh, if you like the micro expressions, uh, Paul Ekman has wonderful books on the micro expressions, which are really good just reading them because it, it gives you different ways to describe and it helps you figure out different things because you uh, and also how you can put the correct layers of, of physical descriptions on things because if somebody's angry or upset or, or something uh, for example if somebody's unhappy they might cross their arms or, or do something and if they're crossing their arms that means they're very defensive or if they're doing very defensive posture they're probably not going to be staring at you meeting your gaze because that's a very aggressive thing so it helps you kind of figure out well if someone's being defensive what other aspects of that could you describe? Maybe they're narrowing their eyes, maybe they're looking away. And that helps you do two or three different uh, details on how to describe somebody. So it, it makes it easier for readers to figure out how somebody is feeling because they can see those very common body language and, and expressions and everybody has those, they're universal. Uh, so that works out real well. Um, I think, uh, another for like some descriptions, I like just Googling images. Uh, I was working on a, a YA novel last week and I start off with like, you know, portraits of 17 year old girls kind of thing. And then I pick pictures and I look for pictures and photos of characters that just jump out at me that look like whatever character I'm trying to form. And I do the same thing with scenes. You know, I might look at if I'm trying to, if I'm setting a world, I like to base them on real places. So a lot of my fantasy novels or, or even other novels. When I was writing, I, was, I have a book set in San Francisco. So I was looking up pictures of San Francisco and I'm finding places going, yes, that looks like where so-and-so would live or that looks like the type of cafe I want for this scene. And then I have, uh, I either do Pinterest boards or I just copy them and I save them in OneNotes. But the Googles and the pictures, it's nice because it helps me kind of clarify what I'm visualizing. And then when I'm trying to think about things to describe, I can look at the pictures and go, oh, well, I didn't even think I could look about how the chairs are or how the fence around it is. And then I can look for things that aren't the most common just details that everybody uses in the book. Because when you pull in things that are a little different is when those scenes kind of come alive. Yeah. Those are probably my favorite resources. <laughs> Amazing. I wrote down, so it was Joan Avaro, was it? Joe. J-O-E. Joe, Joe, Joe Avaro. Navarro. Joe, Navarro. Oh, Navarro. N yeah, N-A-V-V-A-R-O. I'm not sure how many V's or R's, but that's close enough. And what was the You'll other one there. on micro expressions? Um, Paul Ekman. So E-K-M-A-N. Awesome. Um, so the last patron question we've kind of covered already, um, and Judith Mortimer wanted to know uh, the best way to describe your point of view character. But I think, you know, we kind of covered that at the top of the show. That has lovely segues do go. Um, so this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone, <laughs> you're laughing and I know, I know I am why laughing. everyone laughs with those. Tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. 
And this is the hard part. I have been thinking about this since you sent me the questions because I am so not a rebel. I think I'm a, well, now I'll say that. I think I'm a really like low key kind of rebel because I've always done like my own thing. And I mean, I went to art school uh, and I was worked as an artist for a long time as I was doing my writing. And I've always kind of marked a little bit outside the norm and been a little bit different and always wore strange things. And, you know, I did a lot of that, that different things, but I was never an in-your-face confrontational rebel type person because I'm not a confrontational person. So I couldn't come up with anything specific. So I don't think I've ever done anything super, super rebellious. Um, but I think that I am that low-key rebel. I think that I don't do what everybody expects me to do, or I try not to conform to what they think I ought to conform. And I, I do what I want makes me happy, even if it's not what other people think. So that's my. I think rebellion. that's a huge rebellion because it takes an <laughs> awful lot of courage to break away from expectations. Like I think familial expectations, societal expectations can have a lot of like impetus. It can put a lot of pressure on us. And I think it is hard just to do the things that make us happy, like and make, you know, do the things for us because families have expectations friends families you know people who oh, have invested like in be it teachers or whatever they do expect things of us so yeah I think you're definitely a rebel if you have broken away okay. from <laughs> from conformity or broken away from expectations that is definitely um a rebellion because okay. you know yeah I've definitely found it hard sometimes to do the thing that I wanted to do rather than thing that was expected of me so yeah I think that's a rebellion for sure Okay, then. <laughs> um, okay, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, and anything else you'd like to add. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, Fiction University is where you can definitely get me. Yeah, that's all the writing information. And that has like all the stuff for my books. I also write the nonfiction books and plenty of writing. And you can, I mean, though, and the, the books and the novels are all across, you know, there are Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobol, and, you know, all the, the, the regular retailers, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, you can find them paperbacks and ebooks. Um, yeah, Fiction University, more about me. I do have JaniceHardy.com, which I keep trying to do the author website, but, you know, I, author websites are tough. It's like, what do I put on there? You know, I can talk about writing on the blog, but like for me, people want to know my writing. They don't want to know about me. So there is some information on JaniceHardy.com, but it's not a website I really keep up on, but it does have all the basics. So you can find it there. And um, oh goodness, I don't even know what else to share at this point. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. And of oh, course, oh yeah. <laughs> And of course, thank you so much to the show's listeners um, and a giant thank you to the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Janice Hardy and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am joined by Julia Rozdebuchko from Miblart and we talk all about cover design for indie authors. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.